Okay. Hello, dear sisters. So good to see some of your faces. I wish I could be with you there. But uh, this is the... This is the strange time we live in. And anyway, we have found out there are some advantages to Zoom, aren't there? We we can have quite a few more saints participate. And, uh, you know, the only place I ever speak to the sisters is New Zealand. I don't know how... Ray McNee talked me into that. Um, I've been asked to speak to the sisters many times, and I always said every place I went, I, I have absolutely no qualification to do that. But since I've been sharing in New Zealand, I've begun to have a real burden, and um, I see so much benefit. I know some of the saints, even from my locality, are going to watch these messages. So this is really a wonderful thing about Zoom. Another another thing that we've learned during this time, and you know, we're, you're ahead of us. We, we cannot gather at all. We can't have a gathering the size of the gathering that you have right now in the training center, the largest gathering we're allowed to have is five people, but that'll be temporary. But you know what we realized, and this, this relates directly to the sisters, you know, many times when I've come to New Zealand and we've, we've had the sisters training, we had questions and responses and, a lot of the questions, every single time actually, a lot of the questions related to motherhood and how do I participate in the church life when I have small children? And please don't misunderstand me, but it's almost like the children become an inconvenience and a problem that keeps us from participating in the church life. Well, today we're going to have two messages on motherhood, and I really hope that by the time we finish this fellowship, you will have an uplifted and divine view of motherhood. But I would also say this, one of the things we've learned is isn't it great that a young mother, even with a newborn child, maybe she can't come to the meeting hall, but she can be in the meeting now because now we have this technology and I've been fellowshipping with the brothers here in my locality. When we do go back to meeting in the hall, We intend to have a kind of hybrid meeting where the saints who are able to come to the hall, they will come and meet in person, just like you're doing right now. And then 
some who may be elderly, some who may be disabled, some who may be sick, or maybe a young mother who, who, who's not ready to leave the house yet, they can all participate. Isn't this great? I'm, I'm so happy that we learned this during this time. You know, the other thing I like about Zoom is if I say anything you don't like this weekend, you can't throw anything at me. Unless you can throw it all the way to Seattle, it won't reach me. So that means I can, you know, I can speak freely because um, I'm safe. Well, anyway, um, before we get into these two messages on motherhood, I'd like to give a little introduction to set the stage, actually, for both messages. You know, God created man for the fulfillment of his eternal purpose. This is Genesis 1 26, we all know, God made man in his image and with his likeness. That's for his expression. And then he gave man, created man, his dominion. That is for the defeat of God's enemy. So here is a basic principle. Every created human being, male or female, we have one purpose, and that is we are here to express God, and we are here to represent God. That applies to us regardless of our gender. That's the basic meaning of every human being ever ever created by God. Now, the very next verse, Genesis 1.27, says, Male and female, he created them. So that means the man in Genesis 1.26, created for God's purpose. There are two kinds. There's male and there's female. There's not a third, or a fourth, or a fifth. We don't care what society says. We don't care what this age says. We care what the Bible says. There's only two. There's a male, and there's a female. That's what the creator of man says. I think I'll go with the creator of man. I don't care what the human government says. I don't care what the college professors say. I don't care what the media says. I think that the creator of mankind knows what he created. He created a male and a female. Why? The next verse tells us, verse 28, he says, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth. Fill the earth with what? Fill the earth with the image of God. That's what he wanted. 
And according to his ordination, the way that man would do that would be the coming together of a male and a female in marriage. And this was God's ordination. You know, sisters, marriage is not a human institution. And it's not a religious institution. It's not either one of those things. Marriage is a divine ordination. Um, If people had this view of marriage, they would take it much, much more seriously. And let me tell you, motherhood is a divine ordination. When God created a male and a female, he assigned a role to the male and he assigned a role to the female. You know, in society today, I don't need to tell you, you know, everybody is trying to blur the lines between a male and a female and say there's no difference. Yes, there is. Yes, there is. God created females to bear children. And he created males to procreate. This is not a choice that we get to make. This is the, this is the divine ordination of the creator. You're, you're, you're wasting your time if you want to rewrite the laws of nature. The laws of nature cannot be rewritten. I don't care what kind of laws they pass. I don't, I don't care what kind of teachings they, they make. You cannot rewrite those laws. The God, the creator, wrote those laws. And God assigned the bearing of children to the female. And he specifically equipped the female for this function. Isn't this obvious? The males can't bear children. God forbid. That would be awful. Um, Only the females have this function, have this role. But sisters, what I want to tell you today and I hope you get this point, both in this message and the next message. When you bear children and raise them for the Lord and for the Lord's recovery, you are fulfilling God's ordination, you are serving the Lord, and you are fulfilling God's eternal economy. You should never separate your motherhood or your marriage life from God's economy. They're one and the same. God ordained marriage. Now, I've been married 40 years. Sometimes I told the Lord, why did you have to ordain marriage? It's so troublesome. Couldn't you have figured out another way to get this job done without marriage? 
But this is God's ordination. And he also ordained motherhood and fatherhood. So I think part of the problem that we have when we approach this subject is we kind of separate these. We say, oh, I I love the Lord. I love the church life. I love the Lord's recovery. I love God's economy. But this marriage life is really troublesome and raising children is impossible. That's what I always tell the young people when they come to fellowship with me about marriage. I say, well, marriage is really, really difficult. And raising children is impossible, just so you know. That's what you're, that's what you're signing up for. You're signing up for something that can only be done by the divine life. Are you familiar with this? I don't know. I, I, I'm still, I, you know, I'm still in the process of learning the Kiwi language. I, I've learned some of it. Um, are, are you familiar with this expression, the perfect storm? The perfect storm. It means the perfect combination of circumstances that combine together to completely baffle you and you just don't know what to do. That's the perfect storm. Let me tell you what the perfect storm is. It's the combination of the marriage life, parenthood, and the church life. You can't do any of them. You can't do any of them. And then you combine all three of them together. Kind of unfair, huh? (laughs) Well, you know, in Jeremiah, we had a message on the sovereignty of God. And our human perspective is not accurate. We may say that's not fair. God would say, I gave you exactly what you need. Exactly what you need and I know because I'm the creator and you're not okay so I hope you could pick up this basic principle don't separate the marriage life and don't separate motherhood from God's economy and from the church life they are one and the same and I said last time I was with you and I'll repeat it again You know, the church life begins in the home. And the marriage life and the family life is like the laboratory. That's where we work it all out. That's where we figure out the church life. That's how we learn to take the cross. That's how we learn not to live by the self. That's how we learn to be one with another member of the body of Christ. We learn all of this in the laboratory of the home. And once we can work it out in our home, then we can work it out on a larger scale in the church life. And once we can work it out in the church life, we can work it out on the largest scale 
which is the reality of the body of Christ, which is God's goal in this age. So I beg you, sisters, please make this connection. While you are at home, being a mother, you are in the center of God's economy. At least you're in the laboratory. And you know, you don't stay in the laboratory forever. It's a temporary thing. It's a temporary assignment. You know, marriage is a temporary assignment. In the next age, you won't be married. And in the next age, your children will not have that natural tie with you. So this is something that God has assigned to us in the human life for the purpose of working out his eternal economy. Please make this connection. It's not something different than his eternal economy. It is the working out of his eternal economy. So what do we need to do? We need to experience Christ in the marriage life. We need to experience Christ in motherhood. We need to experience the cross and allow the Lord to grow in us through this God-ordained environment. You know, once you are in it, I don't know if you ever felt this way. Maybe I'm the only one. I said, wow, if anyone ever told me what I was getting into, I wouldn't have done this. You know, I come from a very large family. Some of you know this. There are nine children, and there's six boys. And my youngest brother is in his 50s. He never married. You know why? He had five older brothers. (laughs) He said, wow, that's so hard. And raising kids is so hard. I can't do that. Well, I feel sorry for him because he's a believer in Christ and he's missing out on the God-ordained environment to experience Christ, to grow in life. And listen, to know the body. Knowing the body is very practical. We have to know the body with our husband or wife. And eventually, we have to know the body with our children. I've I've mentioned this story once before. I'll just say it again. You know, I have two grown children. One is 32. One is 29. We went through a lot of trials and tribulations with both of those those dear girls, as we all do. And, you know, my, my wife and I would pray for them desperately. (laughs) And in the beginning, when we prayed for them, we would always say, Lord, we pray for our daughter. But one day we were praying for them. And I don't even know why. What came out of my mouth was, Lord, we pray for our sisters. They're not just my daughters. They're my sisters. There's a nat- Yeah, there's a natural relationship. There's also a divine relationship. There's also a relationship in resurrection. 
and our relationship with our husband or wife, it needs to mature. It needs to graduate from a natural relationship to a relationship in resurrection. And our relationship with our children over time must also go through death and enter into resurrection. And in that process, you will experience Christ, you will grow in life, and you will know the body of Christ. And let me tell you, you will also suffer. (laughs) Your natural life will suffer. Of course it will. I would be lying to you if I told you otherwise. Okay, before we get into the outline, I would like to mention one last point, because I know some of you are already thinking about it. You may be, you may be sitting wherever you are listening to this message and say, well, I'm not married. Or I'm married, but I don't have children. So this message is not for me. Don't think this way. What we are speaking is the truth according to the revelation in God's word. We're speaking the principle of motherhood. If God in his sovereignty does not assign you the role of motherhood, and he may not, believe me, he will have another role for you. I, I don't like to get into names or specifics, but I will just tell you, having been in the church life for 45 years, I have known and I do know right now some excellent, wonderful, useful sisters who never had children. You may say to me, well, you just told us it's God's ordination. Yes, it is. But that's a principle. It doesn't apply to every single human being. The Lord Jesus did not have children. The Apostle Paul did not have children. Lots of people in church history who were very, very useful to the Lord did not have children. So don't subjectivize this message. Just just take in the truth of God's word, take in the principle of God's economy, and it it will be a help to you. And, you know, statistically... Most of us are going to have children. It's going to happen. But it won't be 100%. And why? I don't know. You will have to ask the creator, the sovereign one. Okay, now I would like to cover this outline with you. It's The title is Motherhood. I like this. Motherhood. What a blessed thing that is. The need of mothers in raising up the next generation for the church life. You know, we all know uh, in the family life, the main burden is borne by the mother. 
any father who is honest would agree with that. I told you my, my dear mother had nine children and my mother was widowed at the age of 39. At the age of 39, she was a widow with nine children still living at home. And you know what? We did okay because our mother was there and she was a wonderful mother. And if you reverse that, if my mother had died and my father had lived, it would have been a very, very, very different story. Now I've just, don't feel sorry for me. I'm, I'm just fine. I'm just using this as an illustration for you to say that the, the mother in the family life is, the, is more crucial, is more crucial. That means you have, a, you have a greater function in the family life. You have a greater function in the home life. Now, the brothers have a greater function in other areas, but not in the home life and not with the children. You know, don't don't ask your husband to change the nappy. It's going to be a mess. He can't he can't do that. He can't do it. And if he does it, it's he's going to do it all wrong. So you know, you as the mother have the primary responsibility for the home life and for the care and nurturing of the children. What a responsibility and what a what a high calling. I hope, you, I hope you would never consider this as a burden or an inconvenience. Consider it as a, a high calling of God for you. Okay, Roman numeral one says the responsibility over the future of the children of the next generation is on the shoulder of the parents. Yes, it is on the shoulder of the parents. And in an ideal situation, we would have a seeking, spiritual, faithful brother joined together with a similar wife, laboring together to raise their children for the Lord and for his recovery. Of course, that would be ideal. But we don't live in, a, in an ideal world, do we? we? We have all kinds of situations. So I say again, just pick up the principle. Don't become too subjective. The, the best situation and the situation we hope for and the situation we want and the situation we hope our children will have is a believing husband and a believing wife, a seeking husband and a seeking wife laboring together to raise up the next generation for the church life. But be aware, you don't control that outcome. And even if you do your very best, it may not work out, but you will learn all of the lessons that the Lord needs you to learn through that process.
Okay, the church. Oh, oh let me let me uh, quote this verse which the sisters read to us. I like this verse so much. Proverbs twenty two six. It says, "Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it." I want to encourage you, sisters. I know many, many, many cases where the parents did a good job. They really did. And they did train up the child in the way he should go or she should go. But then the child wandered away. But you know what? The deposit of the divine life is still in that child. And the deposit of the truth is still in that child. And I know many cases where later on, later on in life, that deposit was activated and that child returned. So we don't give up on anybody. Um, Everybody struggles at some point in their life, didn't you? Especially the teenage years. It's difficult. It's a hard time. We shouldn't expect that our children will be any different than we are. Um, We weren't angels. They're not going to be angels. But what we can do is we can put the deposit of faith in them. We can put the deposit of the word of God into them. And the biggest thing the number one thing we can do is be a pattern. That's the very most important thing that a parent can do. It's not to teach the children what they should do. It's to do what they should do. We all know the children don't listen to most of what we say, but they always follow what we do positively and negatively. So our biggest job as a parent is to be a pattern. And hopefully our children will follow. There's no guarantee. Adam and Eve had three boys, very, very first generation of mankind. Two of them followed Adam and Eve very faithfully. One did not. I have no explanation for that. I don't think Adam and Eve were bad parents. Our children have a free will. Some of them are going to follow, some aren't. But our job is to train them. And the way we train them is not just to teach them, but to live what we want them to live. Live the Christian life. Live the church life. Live the body life. They will see that. And in the end, it will be their decision whether they follow or not. But that's our responsibility is to give them that pattern. Now, here is a strong statement. Oh, this really, this is from the reading. And I hope you you get time to read these excerpts. It says, throughout church history, The greatest failure among Christians is the failure in parenting. Would you ever say that? That's the greatest 
failure in church history among God's people is parenting? That's what the ministry says. And it says this is something no one cares much about. It's true. It's true. I'm so happy. I, I just... I just interject this. I'm so happy that when I come to New Zealand and I come to the training center and I see the care that is poured out on the children, I'm happy because in the past, we, uh, I've been around a long time. In the past, we didn't do that. And we lost a lot of children unnecessarily because we didn't care for them adequately. And we need a new concept. We need a new concept. Our parenting is part of the church life. In fact, it's an intrinsic part of the church life. It's not something separate from the church life. God has placed a person's body, soul, and spirit, and even his whole life and future into our hands. Oh, that's scary, isn't it? (laughs) I remember when my first daughter was born 32 years ago, I was there at the hospital And my wife gave birth to the child. And then the doctor handed, he handed this little, this little thing to me. It just fit like in the palm of my two hands. I looked at it. I said, what do I do with this? (laughs) I don't know what to do with this. And I had a, I had a very deep, feeling that day that, wow, my life is different now. I am responsible for the body, the soul, and the spirit of this little baby for the rest of her life, for the rest of her life. (laughs) My wife and I used to talk when our kids were growing up and they were in the teenage years and they were kind of naughty. I would say, well, you know, don't worry. You know, this is just a stage. It'll end. But then I found out it never ends. <laughs> as long as you're alive, it doesn't end. So, you know, this is a big responsibility, isn't it? But you know what? It's a blessed responsibility. It's the best. It's the best thing in the human life. It it is. If you ask me, I say it's the best. Okay. No individual influences another individual's future as much as the parents. And no one controls a person's future as much as the parents. You know, sometimes in the church life, I've observed this over the years. Sometimes the children of the saints have difficulties, and sometimes they even leave the church life. And then the parents blame 
the serving ones. I've had, you know, I used, when I was young, I served a lot with the young people. I had parents tell me it was my fault that their child is not in the recovery. I said, man, I only see your child one hour a week. How could it be my fault? They live with you 24 hours a day. I got them one hour a week, and I just try to help them experience the Lord and enjoy the Lord, get into the Word. Um, Don't blame the church. Don't blame the serving ones. The church cares for your children very much. The serving ones care for your children very much. The elders care for your children. But what they can do is very limited, let's face it. And most of what our children, most of what they um, assimilate from us, they assimilate at a young age, at a very young age. So remember that. We're... The church has the burden. They do. But the parents have the responsibility. We have to realize how serious this responsibility is. It is the parents' responsibility to ensure that their children turn out the right way. Suppose we beget children, lose them to the world, and then try to rescue them back. If we allow this to happen, the gospel will never be preached to the uttermost part of the earth. You know, half of our increase should come from our children. I'm not, please don't misunderstand me when I say this, but, you know, I, I, I was raised in Catholicism. That's why my mother had nine children. And, you know, very few people convert to Catholicism because it's not very attractive. The whole secret of Catholicism, their increase, is they have large families, and then they have Catholic schools, and then they indoctrinate those kids, and that's how they have increase. And, you know, the Catholic Church is huge, and the Mormons do the same thing. They have lots and lots of kids, You know, they send out those Mormon missionaries, they have a very low success rate, very low. Almost all of their increase comes from their children. Now, I am not suggesting we follow either one of them, but you get, you get the principle. We, we spend a lot of time preaching the gospel on the college campuses and other places. Just remember you know, you mothers who are at home with your children, you're doing the exact same work as the full-time serving one on the college campus. You're taking care of new ones. You're taking care of gospel candidates who you will preach the gospel to and who you will shepherd and and, and who you will nourish and who you will cherish. And you have a long time to do it. You've got about 20 years. Well, thank the Lord, because it takes a long time. 
one of the problems with the campus work is we meet some really good ones, but if we don't have enough time with them, we can't gain them. So don't, don't feel like uh, I'm doing something less. I used to be a burning, I used to be a burning full-time sister serving on the campus, preaching the gospel, shepherding people. Now all I do is make baby food and change nappies, and that's, that's all I have time to do. Your service is crucial to the church life. It's every bit as crucial, probably more crucial, than those full-timers serving on the campus because we should retain a, a high percentage of our children, much higher than what we could gain off the campuses. Okay, B says, we need to see the responsibilities of parents. We need to consider the Christian way of parenting. This, the knowledge of this will save us from many headaches. <laughs> this is a quote. Oh, I laughed when I read that. Parents have a lot of headaches, don't they? But if we know the spiritual principles of parenting, we'll be saved from a lot of that. And here on this outline... It's very, very good. You, you have uh, at least seven very good spiritual principles on how, how a Christian parents their children. And it's different. It's different from the world. You know, most of us, me included, what we know about parenting, we learned from our own parents, Right? We never took a class on parenting. Nobody ever told us how to do it. We learned it from our parents. And, you know, they all did the best they could. But how about if we come to the Bible and look at the spiritual principles of parenting and pick up God's way? This is... This is what we want to see in this next section. The first point, all parents must sanctify themselves before God for the sake of their children. <clears throat> you know, the Lord in John 17 said that he sanctified himself for the sake of the disciples. What this means is, we live a sanctified life in the sight of our children. What they see in our home, what they see in our living, what they see in our person is a sanctified life. Again, I say, don't become overly subjective. Every one of us is short. And all of us 
could be a much better pattern than we are. But let's pick up the principle, which is once you have children, you're not free. You can't do exactly what you want to do. Because everything you do in the sight of your children is sowing a seed into that child. It's a big responsibility. And we have to realize, now that I have children, I can't live any way I want. I can't do anything I want. For the sake of my children, I must sanctify myself. But it can't just be an outward show. In front of them, I sanctify myself. But when I'm not around them, I I don't sanctify myself. You know, children are really good at seeing through that. It's amazing. Children have a real good perception when it comes to hypocrisy. So the second point is, we not only sanctify ourselves, but we need to walk with God. That means in our daily life, we need to live Christ, not just pretend at home in the sight of our children, but actually to live in our daily life, a life living Christ. And the picture here is in Genesis 5. It says, after Enoch begat Methuselah, the Bible says he walked with God. Before he had a son, it never says he walked with God. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't, but it's not recorded. But as soon as he had a son, the Bible tells us he walked with God. In other words, he realized the sober responsibility that was upon him to care for this child, Methuselah. When the burden of the family was upon him, he started to feel his weakness. He felt that his responsibility was too great and that he could not manage it by himself. So he began to walk with God. Amen. You know, I have also seen this with many children of the saints. Once they have children, they become very serious. Maybe before they had children, they got a little loose. They went to the world. They, they, they wandered. Once they have children, it's another story. They realize, I can't do this. I can't do this. I need to walk with God. This is a good thing. So we should encourage our children to have children. His responsibility as a parent. Oh, I love this. I love this. This is a quote from the reading. I'm reading small c under number two. His responsibility as a parent did not hinder him from walking with God. Rather, it caused him to walk with God. So you see, parenting is not a distraction from the church life. It's a help. It's a big help. It's, and it's exactly the help that we need. It doesn't hinder us. It helps us.
Okay. In order for us to bring our children to the Lord in a genuine way, we need to be a person who walks with God. We cannot send our children to heaven merely by pointing our fingers to heaven. We have to walk in front of them. Amen. Only then can we ask our children to follow us. Here again, I say the main principle. The main principle of parenting is to be a pattern. If we walk with God, there's a very, very good chance that our children will also. It's not 100%. I, I, I'm sorry. I wish it was, but it isn't. But it's the very best chance. It's the very best chance. And let me tell you, if you don't walk with God, there's almost no chance that your children will. Uh, sometimes the Lord is merciful, but it's rare. So the, what's the best thing we can do as parents? The best thing we can do as parents, do our best. Do our best to be a pattern. Do our best to love the Lord. Do our best to pursue the truth. Do our best to be in the church life. Be our Do our best to be built up with the saints, that will give our children an excellent chance. Okay, number three, the father and the mother must be of one mind in order for the family to be healthy. Now, I know because I've been to New Zealand a few times, and we always have questions along this line. Some of you may have an unbelieving husband, or some of you may not have a husband. I, I don't know what to tell you. Life is rarely ideal, it, 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 and there's not much we can do about that. But the principle is a husband and wife, if they have the same mind regarding their children— there's going to be a, a greater chance of success. You know, this is true even in the world. If the husband and wife have two different minds about how they should raise their children, they're going to have trouble. I've, I've, I've seen this. It, it, it's true even with the unbelievers. But even the more in the church life. Um, and you know what this does? It forces the husband and wife to be blended together as one, which is not an easy thing. We know this. It is not an easy thing to be blended together as one with any member of the body of Christ. And sometimes it's the hardest with our own spouse because there's a, a natural relationship there. But this requirement this requirement of raising children forces us to get out of our natural life, to get out of the natural relationship, and to get into the spirit where we can be one and have the same mind regarding how we should raise our children. 
Isn't it good? I don't think it would ever happen if we didn't have children. Okay, number four. Parents cannot exercise despotic control over their children. <laughs> you might say, well, I'm not a despot. I don't know. I've seen a lot of parents who are. They want to orchestrate. They want to control every single thing that happens in the life of their child, what they will do, where they will go, what they will study, who they will marry. This is not the way to care for your children in the Lord. That's a natural way. That way assumes that you know, you know everything that your child needs. Actually, you don't. The better way and of course, we don't let them run wild. Of course not. But we don't try to control everything in their environment. So there's a balance here. We, we give them to the Lord. We also recognize that when they reach a certain age, around the age of junior high, high school, they're going to have to start making choices. You know, no one can choose for anyone else. You can't choose salvation for another person. You can't. I wish we could, but we can't. You can't choose baptism for another person. You can't choose the church life for another person. So we, we shouldn't try to. And I've seen parents try to do that. It never works. Even if it looks like it's working outwardly, the child becomes bitter because it wasn't his choice. It wasn't her choice. It was something forced upon them. No, no, this isn't God's way. God's way is to attract us, to draw us, so that we freely choose to follow him. That's his way. So, don't try to control everything. Number five, parents should not provoke their children to anger. This is a word actually more to the fathers. If you read Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3, uh, very often the fathers have this tendency to provoke anger in the children but I found out some mothers do it too. And if we do that, and if we do it a lot, we'll lose the ground to shepherd our children. You know, shepherding is a matter of love. We don't shepherd in fear. We don't shepherd in anger. We shepherd in love. And if there's a pattern of anger. It, 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 it affects our ability to shepherd our own children. So what shall we do? We need to experience the cross in our parenting. This is part of the perfect storm. Uh, some of you have met my dear wife, 
she came with me a couple times to New Zealand. If you were going to use a word to describe my wife, you would say she is a meek, she's a meek person. You know, we've been married 40 years. She's never raised her voice to me even one time, which is a miracle. She must be an overcomer. (laughs) She should have, but she didn't. But you know, when we had our very, when we had our first child, that child was about one year old. And my wife told me, she said, I never knew I had a temper until this child was born. You have that that experience? (laughs) Children, children, they know which button to push. They know exactly how to get to you and they do it. And what is that for? That's to train us, sisters, to train us not to live in our natural life not to live in our natural life, which includes anger. Okay, number six, on the positive side, parents should nurture their children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. This is a very frequently quoted verse among believers when it comes to the matter of raising children. Uh, The word nurture implies providing the best environment for growth, providing a good environment. But then you have two other words in this verse, discipline and admonition. And I'm not going to get into how to discipline children because there are a lot of opinions about that. But let me just say this. Part of the philosophy of this age is that you don't discipline children. Well, I'll just tell you plainly and simply, that's not the biblical teaching. The biblical teaching is that children require discipline. We require discipline. This is what Hebrews says. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He disciplines his sons. So how to discipline, I don't know. You better pray. You better pray. You better look to the Lord. But don't fail to discipline. Failing to discipline is to fail as a parent. Okay, number seven. Parents should lead the children to the knowledge of the Lord. Well, this is a big, big, big subject. I can only say a little bit. But we need to spend time with our children. I I, I want to make this point. Spend time with your children to impart something spiritual, but remember they don't have a lot of capacity. You give it to them in very small doses and you give it to them at an appropriate level for their age. It actually will damage the child if you try to speed it up. 
And I have observed in the church life, that's the tendency, is to try to go too fast. You don't need to go fast. That child's going to be living in your house with you for a very, very, very long time. Start with the basics. Don't try, don't, don't try to read the book of Revelation with an eight-year-old. It, it's just a big mistake. It's a big mistake. Well, let me just recommend to you on this point. If you haven't got it, get the book, Raising Up the Next Generation for the Church Life, and read it. I wish we had that book when I was a young parent. It it talks about what I just said repeatedly, that don't be in a rush. Don't give the children something prematurely. Remember, they have a very limited capacity. On the other hand, we have to do something. We have to tell them about the Lord. We have to help them appreciate the Bible. That's the other side, right? Like, um, we're going to cover this in the next uh, message, but Timothy's mother spoke the word of God to him when he was an infant. You know, I do this. Whenever a new child is born in the church life where I am, I always ask the parents to let me hold the child And then while I'm holding the child, I speak the word of God to them. And I tell them, you're a little baby. You're a vessel created by God to contain him. One day, the triune God himself is going to enter into your human spirit. And then I tell the parents, when your child gets saved, tell them. Brother Mark was the very first person to preach the gospel to them. I really mean it. I, I, I don't think that's superstitious. I don't think so. Okay, number eight, uh, the last principle. The atmosphere in the family should be love. God rules by love, not fear. Um, Satan rules by fear. God rules by love. That means we have to create in our household and in our family life an atmosphere of love. That depends mainly on the mother. (coughs) Fathers are just not as good at it. You know, my father was in the military, and sometimes he treated us like we were his recruits. If it weren't for my mother, we wouldn't have had a loving atmosphere in our home. So this is part of what the sisters are able to do. Okay, now we are on point C under Roman numeral one. This is a wonderful quote. Can we all read this? Read point C under Roman numeral one. I cannot tell you how many strong believers will be raised up in our second generation if all the parents of this generation would be good parents. I have always wanted to say this. The future of the church 
hands on the parents. And God bestows grace on the church. Beneath vessels, there is a need for more Timothys to be raised up. It is true that we can save many from the world, but there is a greater need for raising up people from among Christian families. Amen. Amen. Okay, the last two points, uh, Roman numeral two, in one sense, we need a good mother more than we need a good father. A good father can do much good for his children, but what he does is not so practical and subjective. The real secret, practical, and subjective help comes not from the father's side, but from the mother's. We'll develop this point a little more in the next message. Okay, Roman numeral three is an important point because Roman numeral three is an illustration of what I said at the beginning of this message. Let me repeat it. Your motherhood, your marriage life, your family life, and your raising up of your children are not separate from God's economy. They are God's economy. They are God's ordination in his economy. And Hannah, the mother of Samuel, is an excellent illustration of this point. Why? She wanted a child. And her human need for a child, her desire for a child, which is completely legitimate. It's not selfish. God ordained this. To pray for a child is not selfish. It's to pray for God's ordination. To pray for a husband is not selfish. It's to pray for God's ordination. So Hannah prayed for a child And on God's side, he had a corresponding need. He needed someone to revive the priesthood. He needed a Nazarite. So God's need and man's need were a reflection of each other, a perfect reflection. So when Hannah prayed for her human need, she was at the same time praying for God's need in his economy. Can you imagine? It's true. Hannah, the mother of Samuel, was seeking God and spontaneously coordinated and cooperated with God. This afforded God the way to replace the waning priesthood under Eli with a new priesthood raised up by God through her son, Samuel. Samuel, the issue of his mother Hannah's coordination and cooperation with God, became a faithful Nazarite, according to his mother's desire for God, and rendered to God the way to end the corrupted age of the judges and to bring in the age of kingship and the prophethood. You want to know how to be a mother? Read the story of Hannah. She is a model mother. We need to be impressed with Samuel's origin, with his source, 
because he came out of such a strong source. He could not be an ordinary worldly person. Rather, he was the one who replaced the waning priesthood and brought forth David, who brought forth Christ. Amen. God could motivate Hannah as a person who was one with him in the line of life. God needs many Hannahs, persons who can bring forth some Samuels to turn the age. I just close with this, sisters. Um, In our prayer, I told you that to pray for a husband is not a selfish prayer, and that to pray for a child is not a selfish prayer. But let me balance that a little bit. It matters how we pray. And it matters what motivates us. Hannah desperately wanted a child. But she told the Lord, Lord, if I have a child, I will lend him to you for his whole life. And then she did that. She did that after Samuel was born. And she named him Samuel. The name Samuel means God has heard. And because God heard her prayer, she fulfilled her consecration. And Samuel became the top. Samuel is the top type of Christ in the whole Old Testament. You cannot find one mistake in the life of Samuel. He, he is, he's the best. He is the very, very best. Well, if Hannah had merely prayed, see, no, notice this. Hannah did not say to the Lord, you know, that Penina is driving me crazy. She keeps having kids. She keeps picking on me. She keeps mocking me. Lord, stop her. Shut her mouth. Give me a child. No, 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 no. That's a natural prayer. That's a natural prayer. How about this? In praying for a husband and in praying for children, how about if we pray with God's economy in view? Lord, the church must be built up and it must be built up by proper households. You have ordained that the household is the building, 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 building block. Pray for a proper husband for the church who will have a proper family life for the church life. I pray for the best husband for your economy I pray that together we could serve you to complete your economy in this age. And Lord, I pray for children who could become the increase of your body and who at a young age could enter into your recovery and become a part of the fulfillment of your purpose. What a difference. What a difference.
Okay, we'll have more to say in the next session. I've, I've spoken long enough. Let's, uh, let's pray with someone who is nearby us. And after that, I believe we'll have some sharing.